Well, dear brothers and sisters, I'd like to invite you to turn with me, if you have a Bible, to John chapter 13, as we start this very blessed section of Scripture in the upper room. Let's uh, remain uh, seated, as I say. We'll read together John 13, verses 1 through 17. John 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, Blessed are you if you do them. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that your blessing might be upon your word, that these things which were at the moment hidden from their eyes might be revealed, even as it is written, that you will know after. May we know the depths of Christ's love as manifested here. May we likewise be transformed and changed by that love by degrees into that same image from glory to glory. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. Welcome to the upper room. The Lord will be crucified in the morning. Nowhere in the entire Bible do we find that, or do we feel that we are walking on holy ground 
more than this. We have, at this point uh, in the Gospel of John, only 155 verses in the upper room. But they are, as Thomas Goodwin memorably put it, a window into Christ's heart. They are words of unsurpassed love and intimacy. They begin here with Jesus washing his disciples' feet. They end in chapter 17 with Jesus praying the longest recorded prayer in the New Testament, a prayer not only for the disciples, but also for us. We can never be thankful enough that the Holy Spirit caused these words to be written for our instruction and encouragement. Let me also mention that the description here is particularly beautiful and vivid. John uses what's called the historical present, something that's common enough both in Greek and in English, switching from the past to the present to tell you what happened in a vivid way. So you might say, I was at Walmart yesterday and I go up to the watch counter and I say, there's this shift you see from the past to the present. And that's what John does here. Although most Bibles translate these verbs in the past tense, if you have the old King James, you'll notice that John actually switches to the present to give us this vivid, compelling picture as it unfolds to our astonishment and wonder before our eyes. Jesus rises from supper. He pours water into the basin. He comes to Simon Peter and so forth. It's very vivid. John is taking you to the upper room, you see, to spend the last few hours with Jesus on the night before he was crucified. And you're going to feel that you were there sitting next to the Lord, hearing the anxious questions of the disciples, listening to these words that will make all the difference when Jesus is gone. These are very precious words and dramatic moments. And John wants you to be astonished as you watch the scene unfold before your eyes. God is about to wash feet. And you see also how this section of the upper room where we will be for many weeks, you see how it's framed, the whole section beautifully in verse 1. Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That verse will take Jesus all the way to the cross. He who knew no sin is going to become sin for us. And what is in his heart at this anxious time? It is love. He loves his people. He loves you. He loves you to the end. But that evening, that blessed evening, began with an embarrassing tension. They came to the Passover feast and all the preparations had been made except one. The food was there. The wine was there. There was even some water by the door and a towel when they came in. But there was something missing. There was no one there to wash their feet. They'd come from the road with mud and manure on their feet, between their toes, and foot washing was customary, and there's the water, and there's the towel. But who will wash them? The Old Testament scholar Andreas Kostenberger explains, the practice of foot washing, which had a long Old Testament tradition, usually was performed by slaves. It was viewed as the lowest of service. And we know that at least some Jews 
didn't think it was right that Jewish slaves should ever be required to wash feet. It was just uh, too unclean and humiliating for them. You know, you can imagine saying, hey, I don't do windows and I don't do feet. You have to go get some Gentile to do that. I got standards, right? Well, apparently good help was hard to find on the day of the feast. So you can imagine them getting to the door. They're, they're, they look around. There's the water. There's the towel. They look around at each other for a moment and then just quietly walk to the table. A little earlier, uh, Jesus tells us they'd be argue, they were arguing as to who was the greatest. But at this point, when they come in, they wonder, hmm, who's the lowest? Nobody wants to do it. And so they sit at the table and they eat their Passover meal with dirty feet. And after the meal is over, you can imagine the shock and embarrassment as the Lord gets up, walks over to the door, takes off his tunic, girds himself with a towel, and takes up the water and one by one begins to wash their feet. What do we learn from this dramatic opening scene of the upper room I'd like to cover it for you in three parts. The glory of God, the glory of the gospel, and the glory of the Christian life. First, the glory of God. In this amazing scene, you are witnessing a revelation of the serving, self-giving nature of God himself. Jesus will say in the next chapter, he who has seen me has seen the Father. For in Jesus we see God on display. We see God manifest in the flesh. And that includes, yes, washing his disciples' feet. And you see how John makes this point explicitly as he introduces the scene in verses 3 and 4. Jesus, comma, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, all authority in heaven and earth was his, knowing that, and knowing that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. You see how he drags out this sentence to set these things before you for your amazement all together. Joining together, you see, the majesty and the humility, the authority and the service. Now, the point is, you must not think that Jesus had just forgotten himself or that this was something that was only proper for his humiliation. Oh no, it's the very reverse. Knowing that the Father had given him all things, knowing that he'd come from God and was returning to God, being mindful of his status as our Lord and our God, Jesus took a towel, girded himself, and washed their feet, all in the same sentence, without ever ceasing to be what he had always been, though existing in the form of God, he had taken the form of a bondservant to serve his unclean creatures, and to demonstrate it before their eyes, God in the flesh self-consciously gets down on his knees before these men, taking the position as slave of all. One of the finest living theologians, in my view, is Donald MacLeod, Free Church of Scotland, professor for so many years. He writes, the impulse to serve 
lies at the very heart of deity. The impulse to serve lies at the very heart of deity. Behold your God. Now, several writers in the last few years have emphasized that God is rightly the most God-centered being in the universe. It's only right that he be most concerned about his own glory because there's nothing greater to be concerned about. Anything less would be wrong. There is nothing more glorious than this. God is properly the most God-centered being in the universe, but lest anyone understand that to be megalomania, the greatness and the glory is supremely displayed and revealed in his sacrificial, self-giving, self-abasing to serve the needs of his dirty, sinful, estranged creatures. His greatness and his glory are on display here, but of course this anticipates supremely the cross on the next day in so many ways. And you remember in the previous chapter that this also connection had been been made. The hour had come that the Son of Man, he says, should be glorified, by which he meant crucified. And he looked ahead to the cross and said, my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. That is what the cross says supremely in all of its horror, in all of its degradation, as God is manifest in the flesh to become the slave of all, to give his life as a ransom for us. By this, he will supremely glorify his name. And there at the cross, God's glory is magnificently revealed. It is amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me, as the hymn writer put it? Or as another one says, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ, my God, all the vain things that charm me most. I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head his Hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingle down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet? Or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, there were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Do you understand what I'm saying? Any self-respecting jihadist can tell you that God is great, right? That's what they shout before they detonate themselves. God is great! What kind of greatness do we see in God? That is the big difference. One scholar comments on John's verse here that Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. He says, with such power and status at his disposal, we might have expected him next to defeat the devil in immediate and flashy confrontation and devastate Judas with an unstoppable blast of divine wrath. Instead, he washes his disciples' feet, including the feet of his betrayer. 
Jesus reveals God to us. A God who empties himself without losing any of his fullness, who humbles himself without losing any of his majesty. No, who glorifies himself in serving us in this way. A God who becomes the slave of all without ceasing to be the Lord of all, supremely revealing the glory of God's amazing love. Love that Paul says does not seek its own. Amazing love. By this we know love. If this is the greatness and the glory of God, descending to cleanse his filthy, estranged servants. We need to rethink what God is like. This is not the kind of God that you would naturally imagine him to be. As I said recently in the evening, you don't need Jesus to know that God is a God of giving. Paul told the people in Athens, last chapter we read in Acts, hey, God isn't served by men's hands as though he needed anything. He himself gives to all men life, breath, and everything else. Any right-thinking human being understands that God gives and gives according to his nature. But surely, in Jesus, we see shocking depths of giving. Shocking depths. Self-giving, condescension, compassion, these things that are the essence of love. Peter is offended in the scene. says, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. But that's the whole point. God has become incarnate precisely to wash our feet, to cleanse us through his own abasement. Shocking and offending not just Peter, but all human expectation of God. We see clearly in God himself the heart of a servant who is not standing on his own dignity, who is not merely looking to his own interests, but in love looking to the interests of others. As Jesus explains it elsewhere, the Son of Man who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so... We see supremely here, my first point to you, the amazing picture of ultimate reality, the God who is, demonstrating his self-giving nature in love, girding himself with a towel to wash the filth from his beloved disciples' feet. A picture of an anticipation of tomorrow's cross. Point one, the glory of God. Can you see it? Point two, the glory of the gospel. In this humble, degrading service, Christ is like a prophet, like Jeremiah or Ezekiel so many years ago in their own acting out of things. Jesus is acting out the gospel. The gospel, which, as you know, is just an English word, old English word for good news. Jesus is acting out the good news, the gospel. Peter doesn't understand. He refuses Jesus. Lord, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus replies, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Or some of you have ESV, no share with me. 
an indication that this is far more than just foot washing, that this is an introduction, this is an acting out of the good news that Jesus is now putting on display. If I do not wash you, you have no part, no share with me. This is something important. This is acting out the good news. What is the good news? What is the glory of the gospel? It's not that if you do what you're supposed to do and be a good boy, then somehow you'll get to heaven or something. Mm. No, no. It's that we come to share in this Christ, in him, in all that it is his. When he's saying, Peter, you'll have no share with me, you'll have no part with me, what he's saying is if I wash you, we, you come to share in Christ and all that is his. Like in a marriage where we share everything, where we become one flesh, when we are united to Christ, well, even our sin and guilt are accounted as his. Christ's righteousness and sonship and death and rising and kingdom and glory are ours. He is ours. That we become, as it says elsewhere, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And all that and so much more is contained in this little phrase, having a part with me, having a share with me, sharing in me. On the cross, Jesus is not merely serving us. He is giving himself for us. He dies for us, not because we deserve it, but point one, that's the kind of God he is. This is the kind of love he has for his people. A God who dies for the ungodly. That he might restore us to himself. That he might wash us, forgive us, heal us, make us whole. His doing and dying cleanses us from all sin. Without that, you've got nothing. Jesus is saying to Peter, unless I wash you, You have nothing of me in mind. Well, surely this is an important word to somebody here right now. Unless Jesus cleanses you, you have nothing of his and him. And you need that serving, that cleansing, without which, he says, you can have no part in Christ. That means if you want to know him, he must serve you in this way. And this is where the struggle really lies for many people. The idea that he must cleanse me. Don't know if I want that. And we don't want to hear from anyone that we are unclean, even if it's God. And when God calls something that we like sin, some people get indignant about it. Some justify it. Some argue around the edges until they can ignore it. But in any case, what they're saying is, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus replies, nothing less is required. Unless you do this, you have no part in me. Nothing less is required for you to be reconciled to a holy God. He must wash you. And all that is required, he has come to do. And the glory of the gospel is clearly seen here that there is no depth to which he is not willing to go, even for people like me and you. And if you've been resisting his serving and cleansing, you're not only delusional about yourself, you're rejecting God as he really is. Because God, the true God, is a God who serves 
and cleanses and restores us to reconcile us to the holy God as he is. Nothing less is required for us to be restored and reconciled to a holy God. And that means that you need to pray that famous line from Rock of Ages. Do you know it? Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's the deal. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Peter doesn't really understand what all this means. Jesus explains to him, you need to do this or else you have no part of me. Well, if that's the deal, Peter says, if you need to cleanse me for me to have any part in you, then not my feet only, my hands and my head. Jesus says, oh, he who's bathed needs only to wash his feet, but, he's, but is completely clean. And you are completely clean. Speaking in metaphors, he explains more later, but in Christ, we have our sins forgiven. Past, present, future, we are completely clean. But we must still, still daily be cleansed by Jesus of the sins that defile us as we walk in this world. We need that daily experience of grace and the restoration of Christ that he gives us. Not only the great cleansing by which we are already clean, but the daily cleansing by which he is able to wash us and renew us and restore us in his grace. So Jesus says, in all of his glorious humility, having girded himself with a towel and become slave of all, come to me and I will wash you clean. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Jesus is illustrating the greatness of the gospel. Unless I cleanse you, you have no part in me. Wash me, Savior, or I die. This is the God who is, his greatness and his gospel. And third, you notice that Jesus applies this then to us as the glory of the Christian life. Do you see what I've done for you? Jesus asks. Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord. And you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor he who sent is greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Well, brothers and sisters, now that we've seen the glory, the great glory of God in his self-serving and self-giving, and we've especially seen, point two, how that great divine service is precious to us, since by it we are saved and cleansed and reconciled to God and have part with Christ. Christ now, thirdly, calls us to share that glorious greatness with him. That divine ambition in the same way. Humble service of others' needs 
That's done in a great variety of ways, both physical and spiritual. But you can remember Paul's words as we prayed them earlier, in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who existed in the form of God, and so forth. This is a divine glory that he wants you to share with him. A high and holy calling to manifest such greatness, such divine love to the people in your life. You could think, okay, knowing that God has made you an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ, knowing that you are going to God, that you also now are to take your place to be the tone of his voice, to be the look on his face, to be the touch of his hand. You are likewise to be the incarnation and patience and forgiveness and faithfulness even toward the undeserving like us. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Husbands, what a difference it would make if we treated our wives more this way as it's written, a husband that, like Christ, gives himself for his wife, cleansing her by the water of the word as Christ did the church. What a difference it would make to our children if we poured ourselves out and served all those under our care and humble love, not as the rulers of the Gentiles, Jesus says, lording it over them, but he who is great among you must be your servant. The greatest must be slave of all, just like the Son of Man. Children, how different your home would be if you treated others and considered them better than yourself, looking out not only for your own interests, but for the interest of others, instead of watching your mom and dad work away, but saying, I'd like to do the dishes. Let me do the floor. You don't have to say amen. Everyone knows. Okay. I say to you all that serving humbly the Practical needs of others is probably one of the easiest of the Christian disciplines to practice. If you have the right attitude about it, you can always find a way. In fact, you can read Isaiah 58 to learn about what a holy day is about. It's about just what I'm saying today. It's about what we read here. Humble ministry to those in need in a divine way. You may not feel like it right away, It begins with the commitment of the will. But you can't get anywhere dwelling on how other people have first failed to love you properly. If God thought that way, where would you be today? You've got to fix your thoughts on how God has succeeded in loving you, despite so many things. And with that thought in mind, point one, point two, you need to reproduce the blessed, costly, self-denying love of God. That is godliness. And as I've said before, I'd like to think that my greatest struggle to love others is others, is you. But the truth is, it's me. It's because of who I am. I am the biggest obstacle to keeping this command. The power is not within me. But John writes elsewhere, Beloved, let's love one another, for love is of God. You're not going to make up in the morning always feeling like this, loving in this way. You definitely won't be around loving people always. And that's why love begins with commitment. But dear friends, it's commitment to something wonderful, something divine, something amazing, 
Something astonishing. Something so wonderful as to love as I have been loved in such a way. That is the greatness, point three, of the glory of the Christian life. Sharing in Christ's manifest glory. Do you see? The greatness of God, point one, revealed in his becoming slave of all to demonstrate the self-giving, self-denying love that is in the heart of deity. Point two, how beautiful that has been to us to wash us that we would have part in Christ. Point three, the glory of the Christian life, sharing in this manifest glory. In conclusion, it's important that we keep these things together because we can never serve others in this spirit like this, in the power of an unknown and an unfelt Christ. You you can never begin to approach this astonishing love unless you start where we started today. You need to go back to basics. See the glory and greatness of God. See the glory and greatness of the gospel. Say, wash my feet again, Savior. Flood me, fill me, wash me with your love and mercy that I may then feel my soul bursting within me and want to live in Christ. It's only when I see the beauty of his amazing love serving me, giving himself for me with such grace that is greater than my sins that I can begin to live this way toward others. Now, you might know that there was a terrible attempt in the last century, especially in liberal scholarship, to try to rid Christianity of the theology of the bloody cross of Jesus. They wanted to get rid of this substitutionary atonement, but they wanted to keep Jesus' ethic of love. And you see how ridiculous it is. You see from the passage how foolish that attempt is. It is precisely his loving, self-giving death for filthy, unworthy people that lies behind the ethic of love. That is the engine, the inspiration, the pattern. You cannot get to washing one another's feet as the slave of all in any other way than through embracing for yourself the glory of God who incarnate has become the servant of all, giving his life as a ransom for many. That's the only way. As one man wrote, the gospel produces not just obedience, you see, but a new kind of obedience, the obedience that is powered by desire. An obedience that is both pleasing to God, useful to others, and delightful to you delightful to you. That when you look at this God-washing feet, you say, wow! And when you see that it was your feet and that you have to share in Christ, you say, wow, wow! And then you can walk in in that way. That's the only way. You must survey the wondrous cross. 
And then you can obey what Jesus then repeats three times for emphasis a little later on. We'll come to it next week. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this will all men know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. That is then the glory and power of the Christian life. You have to start with the wondrous cross and work back to the nature of God. Everything is essential that is essential for the Christian life is found there. And then, as it says, we can be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Forgave you. Then you can walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Then you can receive one another as God in Christ received you. Then, in lowliness of mind, in lowliness of mind, we can esteem each other better than ourselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the own interest of others, having the mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Settle for nothing less. Brothers and sisters, settle for nothing less. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what astonishing grace how you have glorified yourself in the death, the death in which Christ became that servant, that though he was rich, he became poor, poor, poor indeed. Though he was Lord of all, yet he washed our filthiness, that we would have part in him to be reconciled to you. We thank you that by his shed blood, our whole lives may be cleansed from guilt and by his daily providence that we are sure that he does all things well in restoring us, in renewing us, in keeping us near to you, clean. We pray and seek these blessings for us and for all. May we be lost in wonder at the foot of that wondrous cross now and forever.